0: As Mark mentioned, the scripture reading tonight from Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And Paul writes, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted, and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Before we pray, um, want to uh, communicate that this Thursday Ann Englert and uh, Karen Taylor-Smith are going to be heading to St. Lucia on a short-term mission trip and. We want to, uh, and we're going to do that right now as, I, as we pray about the sermon and our study tonight, we also want to pray for God to use these, these two young women in a, in a way to bring glory to Him and encourage people in a, in a country other than their own. And so uh, let's bow our heads, join our hearts, and let's ask God to bless them and to bless us and, and for His name to be glorified in all that we do. When we think about all of the ways that you take care of us and as a shepherd have guided us into your presence and made this firm through the gospel, we are, we are just filled with this tremendous wonderment, Father. The, the love that you show us at times is unnerving because it is, it is richer and deeper and purer than any other thing we have found in this existence on earth. And, it, and it's not only that love, Father, but the, the knowledge, the details, the facts of that love that just compel us, Father, to to be different. And to this end, we endeavor tonight as we worship and remind not only ourselves but each other that you are the center and the core of all things. But as we study this word tonight, Father, to to have our eyes enlightened and our minds uh, given information and our hearts filled up in a way that really does change our ethic and our value system and And reminds us of the of the greatness of your presence in our life to this end, Father, we ask for the eyes and the ears to see and to hear, to discern, to know, and to be better and to be different, and to be strengthened, not only in our faith but our resolve to be disciples of your son Jesus. We also pray for Karen and Anne. Um, we We are grateful for their courage and their sacrifices. to to make this trip we ask your blessing upon them we ask for your wisdom to be poured out for them to be discerning and for them Father to be encouraging of those brothers and sisters in St. Lucia we pray too that you keep them safe and guard them with your angels so bless us again tonight Bless us again in your presence and bless us with your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, It's been a long time since uh, I started a sermon with a joke, was a little hesitant to tell this one, but uh, there's a little boy that went up to his grandfather and asked him if he would make a sound like a frog. And the grandfather said, I think I can do that, but why in the world would you want me to do that? little boy replied, Dad said, when you croak, we're going to go to Disneyland. (laughs) The moral of that story is that sometimes we're not all that concerned about other people's bodies. Now, we can forgive the little boy, but it's hard to handle how churches, in fact, probably a lot of churches, delight in the struggles of of another church. Sometimes it's a competitive spirit that wants to be the largest or to be the most famous or to be the most cutting edge or to be the most popular. Sometimes it's a lackadaisical and a disinterested attitude in what's happening in other places. For me personally, it's distressing to see how attendance drops when we want to talk about missions in our assemblies frankly that's a disposition far from the thoughts and the desires and the practices of paul for the church worldwide all you have to do is read the epistles of paul to see that he had not just an affinity but he had a love he had a love affair with the church because he loved Jesus. And he loved what Jesus had done in his life through the gospel. Paul, Paul was a scholar. But Paul also saw what Christ had done for him, had changed not just his direction, not only his career, but changed his life from death to life on that road to Damascus beginning of Acts. Paul had a love affair with the church because he knew that the people that had made up that church in the ancient world had the same experience, maybe not to the same profound degree, but had the same experience of the gospel that he had. His experience of the gospel had given him life, life with Christ. And when he went to churches or heard about churches that he had never visited before, he knew that those people had life in them that they were people he would see in eternity if not in this life because of Christ and because of the gospel. He loved the churches he knew personally and he loved the ones he had never been to like this church in Colossae. He never stopped loving or praying for this church in Colossae. Now listen again to the words that Paul says about this church he's never been to. He's never, he doesn't, they don't know him by face. And he says in the second chapter, he says, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have never met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches, the full riches of complete understanding. In order that they may know the mystery of God. Namely Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this. So that no one may deceive you. By fine sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body. I am present with you in spirit. And delight to see how orderly you are. And how firm your faith in Christ is. So then. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. Rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Question. Is there a church where you cannot put a single face with a name, and yet you're prayerfully passionate about their effectiveness in not only preaching the gospel, but living the gospel and living the implications of that gospel on a daily basis in some part of the world. Here's the thing to know about that word struggle. It's one of Paul's main words for prayer. In Romans chapter 15, Paul knows that he wants to go on to Spain. He's got to go to Rome. But before he goes to Rome, he's got to go to Jerusalem. And he knows that the people in Jerusalem are not exactly wearing his jersey around the temple. They don't have his picture in their wallet. They're not exchanging Christmas gifts in December. He knows that if he goes to Jerusalem... He is putting his life in danger. But he does so because he loves the church in Jerusalem. And he says to them in, in Romans 15, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in struggling. To join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, there's two chapters down the road, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. The word is sunogizomai. And it's the word that means to strain all of your nerves. It's it's the word for agonizing. In fact, you can hear sunogizomai. You hear the word agonize in it. And this is what Paul wants the church to be doing. Listen, if prayer doesn't matter... Why then does Paul spend so much time offering up these prayers to God in the name of Jesus for churches, for the body of Christ, for those that have given themselves to living in the kingdom with all of its implications, to living out the ramifications of the gospel, of aligning your life with Christ, receiving forgiveness, but not just forgiveness, but also receiving the Holy Spirit of God. Friends, you're not going to see a church blessed in all fullness unless someone is praying for it. You know, Eugene Peterson, a, a great mind when it came to human spiritual transformation uh, through the, the disciplines that we read about in the Bible, as well as you know, translating uh, you know PhD in biblical languages. He wrote many of you have a copy of this, The Message which was to put these ancient texts in a more modern language context for us. And in Colossians 2, verses 1 and 2, the message, Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, not many of you have met me face to face, but that doesn't make any difference. Know that I am on your side, right alongside you. You are not in this alone. Forbes magazine a couple of years ago had a really sad article in it told the story of an employee at a Finnish tax office who died at his desk while he was checking tax returns and nobody noticed for two days. Door was closed. It was quiet. Everyone there, even though there were about 80 people on the floor and 20 in the vicinity of him, the door was closed and everyone thought that he wanted to work in peace and quiet. People were just busy with their own lives, with their own agenda, with their own work, and they just didn't notice. Just didn't notice. And I wonder how many times does a church close its doors and dissolves its assets and no one outside even knew they were struggling. There are churches in this city where we live. There are churches in this city that many of you may have never attended, visited, or driven by but have closed their doors. And there are churches that are still you know, vibrant in this city that we have never visited. We couldn't tell you who the preacher is. We know they exist, but we've never driven by. Why not add those churches to our prayer, our daily prayers? Like Paul, to wrestle for this church or that church as, as well as for, as, as for other churches around us as well as for our own church. We pray for people. We need to pray like Paul did for churches to thrive and to flourish and to be light and beacons of the gospel in whatever city they are planted. And so in this text tonight, what it is that Paul is doing is helping us to know how to pray for a church. We find some of the same material in Ephesians. Ephesians and Colossians have a lot of the same material. You'll find some of this as well in Ephesians. The first thing that Paul teaches us in this text, beginning in verse 2, is we are to pray for churches to be united and loving. We are to pray for churches to be united and loving. There is a church, this is not a church that is uh, unknown to me, it is a church that Ellen and I ministered to for six years in a foreign country. There's not a day that goes by that I see the sunset that I don't think about that church. And even though it's been more than 20 years since I have ministered with that church or lived in that country, still we pray for the people in that church, the leadership of that church, for that church in that city to flourish and to thrive and when persecution comes or there are tough times to have a certain kind of a buoyancy or a poise in the tough times and to be vibrant in their love and to be united in their love for each other and to be the body of Christ in the capital city of the fifth largest nation in the world. Paul in Colossians 2 verse 2 says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they might know the mystery of God, namely Christ. When you think about that prayer, does it sound vaguely similar to another prayer? It reminds me of of what Jesus prayed in, in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, you know the story... Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross that last week of his life. You sort of see a ramped up energy and a ramped up dynamic when it comes to his teaching and pleading with people to understand not only that he is the Messiah, but what it means for him to be the Messiah and to understand it in light of the cross and to understand it in light of what it is that God is trying to do with his kingdom breaking forth on the earth. And so he says in verse 22, he says of John 17, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. He's talking to God. God, as you and I are one, I pray that they may be one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, these false teachers... As we've already seen in chapter 1, these false teachers were coming into the church at Colossae and they were trying to divide it with false doctrine and false teaching and with myths and these kinds of things. And Paul is letting them know, I'm, I'm, I'm in this with you. I know what's going on. I know how troubled you are and how you're struggling right now. Let me, let me tell you that I'm praying for this church, Paul writes to them, that you will stay united in love rather than picking each other apart with some of the stuff that's going on in that church. And quite frankly, church, every church, even ours, struggles with flaws and warts. What keeps us unified is not that we agree perfectly on every single issue, but that we are one in Christ because we are united by the love of Christ. We love the church that exists in reality, not in some fantasy world where humans never make mistakes. If that was true, then Paul wouldn't have to write to the church in, uh, in Ephesus that you need to forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. He's not writing that about people outside of the church. He's writing to the people inside of the church. You know what? People inside of that church were really getting after each other. And Paul says, if you've been forgiven in Christ, how much forgiveness did you receive? All you needed, everything, until forgiveness just overflowed. That's what you're supposed to show to other people in the church in order to remain a united body. In reality, we do not love the church primarily because of the people. With that said, I say primarily. We love each other. And there are people in this church that I love dearly. But we do not love the church primarily because of the people in it, but because of the one who died for it. So in Ephesians 5 Paul says, you know, you need to be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul, when he's writing to the Colossians, very next chapter, he's going to say, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, and humility, and gentleness, and patience. You know what you need to do, Colossi? Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Outside of the gospel. and and God's Spirit, and God's Word, and my own Damascus Road encounter with the Christ, the most dynamic change agent in my life has been the love of my wife. My wife loves me for reasons only known to herself, perhaps. But I understand that love. I know know the flavor and the genuineness and the authenticity of her love for me. I I know that she bears with me, and I know that not only does she love me and, and bear with me, but she serves me, and she tells me the truth, and she's honest with me, and she is gentle with me, and she is affectionate with me. What am I supposed to do with the experience of a love like that? If not, change completely. And you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever experienced that kind of a transformational love, where you know that you're not just loved to this point and no further, that it's not that I love you for what I can get out of you, but that you're loved all the way. Loved all the way. That's a human example and a human experience of what it is to experience the love of Christ through the gospel. To know something so profoundly full of blessing for your life that you can never get over it. To to know that somebody, I mean because you know yourself pretty well, to know that somebody loves you that much, sees all of the warts, all of the flaws, all of the, the, the ways that you stumble in your soul, but they love you anyway, is a blessing that you can't describe. But it is a blessing and a love that you live worthy of. I, I've told you about Ellen and I. We we love this show called *Poldark*. It's on PBS, a masterpiece theater. It's uh, it's based on the books by Winston Graham about you know this English dude right after the Revolutionary War is returning to England, starting his life all over again. He's he's um, when he returns, he finds basically all of his life, family, property, everything is in shambles. And when he gets back, the love of his life is engaged to his cousin. Well, he accepts all of that and, and he's, as you can imagine, having been wounded in the American Revolutionary War and coming back and finding even deeper wounds, that, that he's a broken individual. But he does pick up the pieces. He gets back to the work of restoring his family property. In the meantime, he does something unthinkable. He, he marries a woman from across the tracks. She is beautiful. Her name is Demelza, she's his kitchen cook, she is clever, she's hardworking, she's kind, but she's from the other side of the tracks, she's not of his station, she is way below him, but he marries her instead, instead of the social convention of his day. It creates this gossipy scandal among the landed gentry of his day. She says, yes, they're married but she does not think that she will ever hear the word from her husband that he loves her. How could someone from his station love someone like her? At the same time, she begins to take a lot of heed from the wealthy women of Ross Poldark's station. As she begins to interact with him as his wife. And, and one night... Um, In a moment of of despair, she's distraught at the idea that she will never be accepted, never embraced, never approved. And in a moment of despair, she asks her husband, Poldark, why he married her. And he's like a typical guy. He doesn't uh, catch on to the emotion right there at first, but then he begins to see that this is a very serious question because it's the question of her life. And he says... I am your servant, and I love you with all of my heart. Those three simple words, I love you, they just melt her down. And that's all it took to completely transform her. And it changed the servant girl into the lady of the estate. It's what love does. We would have fewer struggles, I think, with each other if we struggled more for each other in prayer. Asking God to give you the same blessing that you want Him to give you. Colossians 2, verse 2, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. So you pray for churches to be united and you pray for them to be loving with each other. But you also pray for minds to be full of heavenly wisdom. The big question in the world today is where do you go to find how life works? Where do you go to find how life works? I mean, most of the time people go to Facebook and they throw the question out there. How do you make an omelet without burning it? How do you boil an egg and it's soft and not hard? People just want to know how life works. This is something that Paul would pray, though, for other people. He would pray about that. In Colossians 2, verse 4, he says, I'm telling you all of this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Paul knows that there's a lot of wisdom out there. Which wisdom really works? Which wisdom is really wise? Where do you go? So then he says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all. What's the definition of the word all? All. <laughs> in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why? What is hidden to the world? What is hidden to the world is revealed to believers. You are rich because you have a knowledge of this life that comes from God which the unbeliever on the street does not know, does not have. It is the treasure of who God is. It is the treasure of who you are as a human being created by that God. It is the treasure of the knowledge of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying power in you when through faith that life-altering belief in the good news of the kingdom of Jesus that changes you and makes you a disciple of Jesus. It is the treasure of knowing that we are more than conquerors. It doesn't matter what kind of enemy comes. We are more than conquerors in Christ. True wisdom about life is found in Christ and how to live it. The Good News Bible puts verse 3 this way. He is the key that opens all the hidden treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. I say to that, amen. As Christians, we look at the questions of life through the ultimate realities that are revealed to us in God's Word. What we're doing in times like this, when I'm standing up here for about half an hour, seems like four days, is we are looking at life through ultimate realities. That's what we're doing when we interact and spiral more deeply. Each time we come to it, spiral more deeply into the Word of God. We are learning to think like a new person. Our choices, though, often reflect a lack of confidence in Jesus knowing what He's talking about. One time in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking to a bunch. He said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That is an eternal truth and reality and wisdom. But a lot of us wonder if Jesus knew what he was talking about. We're bombarded with the message that a man's life depends on his possessions. And that's what makes sense. So we turn off Jesus and we begin to turn on and live by a worldly value system. The question I want to ask though when we struggle with that is can Jesus be divine and dumb when it comes to life? So we pray not only for our minds personally and the minds of our brothers and sisters but the minds of believers around the world to not be taken in by these wise-sounding myths and the things that Paul is talking about, but to be enlightened through the truth of God's Word. And then number three, we pray for lives to be rooted in Christ, to be anchored there, for us to flourish and to thrive as people because we're rooted in Christ the way that a rosebush bush thrives and and flourishes and becomes beautiful because its roots are growing deep into the right kind of soil. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. Don't just accept it. Accept and live. Embrace and put down the roots. Rooted and built up in Him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. In in this text, Paul brings up a really interesting point. He says, as you received Christ, as you have received him, continue to live in him. The interesting thing, and scary, is it possible to receive Christ, but to not live in him? Paul, I think, would say yes. Because Paul had seen human nature wrestle with the sanctifying power of God's Spirit and the veracity of His Word. He would say, you can be baptized and not die to sin. Romans chapter 6. But in Colossians 2 verse 9 he says, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and every authority here's what he's he's communicating that the fullness of God was in Christ we believe that he goes on to say that that fullness lives in us and that's where we struggle. And that's where we struggle. One of the most, uh, i, I would probably, it wasn't the most traumatic, uh, but it was the first traumatic experience I remember. We were uh, little kids, and we were out on the, the ranch up in North Texas. And um, my dad and his partner had decided that, um, uh, that we were going to have a very special Thanksgiving. And so, for a couple of months, there were a couple of turkeys in this little pen that they were feeding every day and taking care of and fattening up, and we just thought turkeys were just kind of the coolest animals ever, and we just you know we just couldn't believe it. this you know the pilgrims and in our little minds, we never connected Thanksgiving and those turkeys we were raising. And uh, one day, uh, my dad's partner, a fellow by the name of Art, uh, gets an axe, and we're going, "Oh, hey something's about to happen." We didn't know what, but you know, man with an axe—good things to a kid, right? And we follow him out to the pen, and the next thing you know, he's taken—and you know what happens? And just about the time he he <laughs> he executed those turkeys, and we were just wide-eyed, never thinking it, ever in the world of of boyhood that something could become even more surprisingly, you know, compelling to see than what we saw afterwards and that was to see these bodies running all over the place disconnected to their head there was a lot of activity but no connection to the head that happens with a lot of churches that happens with a lot of churches happens to a lot of churches because it happens to a lot of disciples there's either an erroneous idea about baptism that it's, it's, you know, the thing you do, like a life insurance policy that someday you're going to need to cash it in. But that's treating baptism like a superstition. Or it's some erroneous ideas about grace that says, you know, I'm just saved and whatever I do, God's grace is going to cover me and it doesn't matter what I do. I don't have to take a full I don't have to take full responsibility, maybe pay the consequences, but I don't have to take full responsibility for my sin. And Paul says, don't you know what you're doing? That when you were baptized, you died to sin. You participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The word symbolism is not found in Romans 6. You participate in, In Jesus' death, you die to sin. You become one with Christ and one with God. When you believe the gospel and you confess that you are no longer the Lord of your life but that God is because God created you, And you confess that that lordship and you make that repentance which is to move your life 180 degrees in the opposite direction. That is you move in direction of God. Baptism is about aligning your life up with the will of God in your life as well as receiving the, the washing away of your sins as well as receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. We pray to always, always, always be connected to the head of the church. And rejoice not only when we see it happening in our own church body, but when we see churches as light and as salt making a difference in the communities that they live in. And we pray for them when we hear about hardships. And we pray for them when, when their leadership stumbles and there's that period of awkwardness in the movement of that church because of of leadership having stumbled, we pray for them to be rooted. We pray for them to be united. We pray for them to know that life-transforming, life-altering love that comes to them through Christ from God. We pray for them to know what real wisdom is all about. To be able to see through with the eyes that have been enlightened by the truth, the doctrines that we find in the Bible. To know what is the truth The reality, the ultimate reality that we live in. And that's what we begin doing tonight. Not only praying for our churches, but for the churches in San Antonio, our sister churches. We pray for those churches on the mission field that we have been involved in planting. The ones that we may not have planted, but we go to encourage and minister to and help with their outreach in those cities. We may never, ever, ever as a group make it to Taiwan or to Chile, or to Swaziland. But what we do know is that God is working in those places the way that he worked in my life and in your life. And what we do is to rejoice with those those brothers and those sisters and pray that they continue, as we pray for ourselves to continue, to grow in the likeness, the likeness and imitation of God the Father.